You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution Church? I'll take it. I don't know if any of you guys seen, whenever you came in where like the Fuel the Revolution box was, did you guys see the, the buckets of peppermints and Werther's? We didn't put that there. Was that you? I pre- it, was, it was the church that's here in the morning, Gateway. And I thought they were Pentecostal. I didn't know they were turning into Baptists. Because you guys know like the old man, like I grew up in a Baptist church, like the old guy who's always got Werther's or like Lifesavers in his pockets. And you're like, where's Jim? Like you're like seven years old. And, like you're just hunting around shaking people during the congregational songs, like shaking their hands, but you don't care about them. You're just looking for the one old guy with the candy. So I don't use props or anything, but have that, John. Anyway. That's, that's for you. I love Werther's, for real. I'm an 80-year-old in here. It's so good. Um, so we're starting a new series today. I, I'm, I'm, I'm super pumped for this. Uh, the name of the series is Bible Stories. That is, the, that is so cool. Like, Katie Reed, she's the lady who does our graphics. Is Katie in here? Yeah, Katie's in the back. She's kind of awkward, and I won't bring her up on stage or anything like that. It's a, it's a term of endearment, all right? I love Katie. She just knocked it out of the park with this. Remember the felt boards, like, growing up in Sunday school and all that? I, peeling it back and putting Christ in the Old Testament, that is just genius. I wouldn't have thought of that. Um, it's super cool. But we're starting this series called Bible Stories. And the idea is that we're going to be looking at the Old Testament um, and see how it points to Jesus, right? And reason being, we have good reason to do that. That wasn't just an idea from, from like, off the top of me and Stephen's head or anything like that. But um, the books in the New Testament, Colossians and Hebrews, both talk about how the Old Covenant, right, the Old Testament, um, was a type and shadow of the one who was to come, talking about Jesus, right? So all the law, all the people in the Old Testament were just foreshadowings of the Christ who was to come. Um, Jesus himself, in John chapter 5, verse 39, uh, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, you, 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 look in this, like, you look to the scriptures as if they're going to save you, but you are completely ignorant of the fact that the scriptures all point to me. Right? And we see again in Luke 24, verse 27, Jesus sits down with some of his disciples and he teaches them all of the things in the Old Testament concerning himself. Right? So we didn't make this up. This is, just, this is a good exercise for us to do. How does the Old Testament foreshadow Jesus? How do the Old Testament stories, the law, everything, how does it point to the one who was to come? So what we're going to be doing, um, we're taking a couple of breaks, but roughly for, yeah, for the next two semesters for you college students, was it 36 weeks? Yeah. Yeah, I know math. Um, We're going to be looking at some of the most famous accounts in the Old Testament, like the Old Testament's greatest hits, if you will. Um, And and we're going to see how they foreshadow and point to Jesus Christ. Again, because like Jesus says, everything points to Jesus. Um, Everything. So I want to be super open, though, before we get this sermon going. Um, I've never preached out of the Old Testament before in my life. I've been preaching for three years, and I've never said, all right, church, turn your Bibles to pick that Old Testament book. And that never has happened. So, like, I am legitimately nervous about this. Like, I know I seem like I'm goofing around up here, but, like, inside, like, my stomach's, like, in knots. Because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of intimidated by the Old Testament. I know I'm not the only Christian that does that. Because um, I know that there are so many bad teachings concerning the Old Testament. Like, I grew up, I had no idea that, the, that all these stories in the Old Testament, all these accounts, I had no idea there were foreshadowings of Jesus. I didn't know how to pick up on those things because no one ever taught. I was not taught the Old Testament very well. Um, and I don't want to be the guy to continue that tradition onto you, right? So <laughs> we want to break the cycle. Uh, so I'm a little bit nervous about this just to come clean with you guys. Um, but through some people talking here, Courtney Francis, if she's here, she actually had a, she's not that jerk. 
She's home. Okay. I love her, by the way. I really do love Courtney. Um, she, was at, she asked me one time, like, why, why haven't we, like, learned too much out of the Old Testament? And, and I had her and multiple other people come and, and, and ask me that question. Um, and God really pressed on me over the course of, like, a six or eight months that he's given us the entirety of the Bible for us to know him deeply and that we ought not neglect any of the parts of Scripture, right? Because like Paul says in, in, uh, in, in the New Testament, he says, all Scripture is God-breathed, right? So all of it's inspired by God. All of it is good for us. And God intended us to know and learn from every page of the Bible. There's something about him everywhere because the Bible is primarily a book about him, right? So he's given us all of this and, and we... We need not neglect it. Now, as a church for, for eight years, I believe Rev's been in church for eight years this year, we've never spent a whole lot of time in the Old Testament, and that needs to change. So we are, to the glory of God, going to dig into the Old Testament and see what God has for us. Um, so tonight we're going to be starting in Genesis 1, right? Surprise, surprise. If we're doing the greatest hits, right, we're starting with the first CD, right? We're doing Genesis 1. Uh, we're starting in the beginning, quite literally, um, now, in Sunday school, I don't know about you guys, but in Sunday school, I always check the creation account, like the creation story, off of something just to know, right? Like, I, I tend to do this with, with the Bible in general sometimes. Like, God created everything, right? And he created it from nothing. Got it. Let's move on, right? Just check that off the box. Gotcha. There is a God, and he made the world and everything in it. Um, but there's so much more to it than that, Right? This text teaches us a ton about God. So that's the first thing that we're going to look at, is all the things that this text in Genesis 1 teaches us about God. Again, because the Bible is primarily about him and not us. Um, but this passage in Genesis 1, it also offers us an incredible amount of hope in the face of a world that says everything is by chance. In a world that says there is no real meaning to life, we're just floating through space on this rock all by ourselves, and you must ascribe some meaning to your own life. Um, Genesis 1 really offers us a lot to stand in defiance against that kind of a thinking. Um, so what, I'm, what I've been praying all week is that by the end of this sermon that we would all be really encouraged. Because um, I know like we kind of got some punches to the face going through Acts, at least I did, of, of where I'm failing at. But this passage is really encouraging to me. Um, and I hope that we're encouraged because we're going to see by the end that we serve an all-powerful, sovereign God who purposes everything. And promises to restore everything to how it once was. All right, so without any more by way of introduction, we're in Genesis chapter 1, um, verses 1 through, what, chapter 1, verses 1 through the whole chapter, and then chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But I'm not actually going to be reading all of it to you, so if you want to go home and read it, read it all. Um, but it's going to be here on the projector. If you're new here, and the Bible you have is hard to understand, take one of those blue Bibles home with you. That's our gift. It's super, super easy. It's called the NLT. So check that out. Uh, but anyway, let's see what Moses wrote in Genesis, because Moses actually wrote the first five books of the Bible. There's tidbit information if you didn't know. He says this, Genesis 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed and morning came, marking the first day. All right, so I'm going to stop there. I'm not going to read this whole chapter to you. Um, if, if you do read this or, or 
if, if we were to read this uh, all together right now, there's this pattern throughout this whole first chapter. And basically, here's the pattern. And it's, it's kind of funny because, like, it's just, it's so crazy. And I don't mean that in, like, a, it's an unbelievable way, but, like, just the raw power of God. Like, God speaks, and then something comes into existence, right? Like, that's crazy, like, the kind of power that he has. So God speaks, and then the thing necessarily happens. And that's how he creates everything. It's like, he doesn't form or fashion things out of pre-existing material. He doesn't use his hands, so to speak, uh, but he speaks and things just are. All right, so that's the first thing we see. And then the second part of this refrain is that evening passes and morning comes, and that is whatever the nth day that it is. So we see, if we were to read it all, that on the first day God created light and separated the light from the darkness. Um, We see on the second day that he creates sky and separates it from the earth. Um, On the third day, God causes the waters to part and uh, dry ground to come up, and the dry ground to spring forth with vegetation, right? All the food, all, all the plants, everything. And we see on the fourth day, God creates the sun and the moon and the stars, right, to govern the heavens and all of that. And on the fifth day, we see that he makes fish and birds. Um, and then the sixth day comes, and that's what we're going to pick up on. Verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 3. Then God said, just bear that in mind. Then God said, like that's just mind-blowing to me. He just said it. Then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And that is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, and small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the sixth day. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work in creation, so he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. Let's take a second and pray. Uh, Father, please... uh, Soften our hearts to receive your word. It's the Holy Spirit working with the word that's going to change us. So God, I pray that we would see your supremacy, your power, your sovereignty, your complete independence, your, your love for, for creation, your love for man, um, your redemption through Jesus Christ. God, make all these things, not just stuff that we check off a list of things that we believe, but things that hit us in the hearts and actually begin to change us. And God, I ask you that you would change us. Unbelievers, change them. Believers, change us more. Because if you don't do it, then all this is for nothing. So, Father, please do a sovereign work of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.
Okay, so what does this text teach us? That's what we always want to know. What is, this t- like, what, what is the text saying? What's the author trying to get across? Well, the most obvious thing is God created everything, right? It's almost like it's like a Sunday school answer, like Jesus. Like you can just like throw that one out there, and like it's going to stick. At some point or another, you're going to get a piece of candy. I should have brought the candy up here. Hmm. <laughs> anyway, um, but obviously the most obvious thing that this text teaches us is God created everything, right? Whenever the Bible says in verse 1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, this doesn't mean just the sky and like the world that we live in, but it's referring to the earth, obviously the place that we occupy, and the heavens. It's everything around the earth, right? So this is the entire universe. Now, if in the beginning he had to create it, that means that he created it out of nothing, right? And the reason why, the reason why I think that that's good for us to point out is this. God didn't work on pre-existing matter. Right? It wasn't like that there's something co-eternal with God, right? the world, or the, the earth, and it just needed shaping up, and it needed filling. But like nothing existed until he talked. <laughs> That's insane. Like Truly, life is found in God. And apart from him, there is nothing. All right? So again, God created it all, which also I thought was really interesting. The fact that he created everything out of nothing, or if you're into Latin, ex nihilo, right? There's your... $3 word. It made me feel smarter whenever I was reading that today. Um, probably mispronounced it. You philosophy people can make fun of me later. Um, right? But the fact that God created everything out of nothing implies his ownership. Right? He did, because like he did not borrow from anyone. No one helped him create the world at all. As a matter of fact, we see that, that he only created intelligent life like human beings after the world was created. Right? He did that for a reason. He's saying uh, that no one else has rights to his creation because it is indeed his. Right? It's not like he made this thing at a company and like the company owns technical part of it because it was in their place. Like He owns the whole thing. Right? So that was a big thing for me to kind of th- think about this. Another thing that we see this, and I, this is interesting to me, we see a hint of the Trinitarian nature of God. Right, right here in, in the first bit of the Bible, and what I mean by Trinitarian nature, uh, if you're new to like church words, the God is a Trinity, right? Which which just means this: uh, God is one essence, that is God, and yet three distinct persons: Father, Son, and Spirit. Like the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, and so on and so on and so on. All three of them are completely distinct, and yet they're all united as one. If you want to study that more, good on you. We can talk about it later. That, just for the record, is the hardest doctrine. Uh, to understand, in my opinion, in Christianity, is the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, Because there's literally nothing like it in all of creation, which, fun little apologetic, that makes me think that human beings didn't make that up, because we have, like, nothing to compare that to. Like, we wouldn't have thought of that. Uh, Anyway, so we see this hint in the first chapter that that God is indeed a Trinity. And the reason why I say it's a hint and not explicit um, is, is because God chose sovereignly not to reveal everything at one time. It's this doctrine we believe called progressive revelation. And what that means is God reveals slowly but surely as history progresses, he tells us more about who he is. And obviously, the the greatest revelation of who God is was Jesus Christ. And there is no greater revelation than Jesus. So God, again, he's a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. But in the first three verses, we see at least two members of the Trinity. We see in the beginning God created, and we see his spirit hovering over the face of the deep. All right, so we see at least God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And then I thought this was fun. In verses 26 and 27, he says, Let us create man in our image. Again, that's plural. And then it says, He made them 
in his image. So we see a plurality of God referring to himself in the plural and then being referred to as one. All right? And then again, by the time that we get to the New Testament where God reveals himself ultimately in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we find out in John chapter 1, I recommend you read all these, John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 1, that Jesus, God the Son, was actually the active agent in creating everything. Right? It's like Jesus actually created And the best way for me to explain that to you, okay, so it says God created, and then the New Testament says Jesus created. How does that work? The best way for me to explain that is that God the Father wills something to be done, or he speaks that it ought to be done, and then Jesus, God the Son, acts to accomplish the thing that the Father wills, and then we see the Holy Spirit governing the whole thing, right? Hovering over the face of the deep. He's governing. He's applying it, right? Which is, I thought was really awesome, and I'm not going to dive into this, but I can't leave this unsaid. The same thing happens in our salvation, Completely. Right? God the Father wills to save some. The Son comes and accomplishes the will of the Father in His perfect life, death, and resurrection to atone for the sins of those who would believe. And then the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again to a, to a, to a saving faith in Jesus. Right? So in the same way that God created the world out of nothing, He creates new people out of people that have nothing good in them. And then He declares it to be very good because it's been united with His Son. Right? So this is how God's always creating. The Father wills, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit governs. It's like He governs our lives today. But aside from all that stuff, right? The things that I see directly in this text. Now, I just wanted to, I, I had to do this fly-by points. This is just too cool when I was studying this. I couldn't leave that undone. Um, what I see directly in this text, three things. One, God is all-powerful. Like, and again, that, that can be a thing that we check off the box or we can let that be something that makes us stand in awe of God and actually begin to wrap our minds small, like just in, in a small way around who he is. Like, what other being in all of creation speaks or wills something and then things begin to exist? That, that is incredible. Right, like we can will something, we can make a command and then set a plan in motion to try to achieve the command, but God just does it. This is what I intend on doing, and guess what it happens? Nothing can oppose him. It just happens. He is incomparable. Right? And this fact that God just speaks and things begin to exist, or conversely, God speaks and things cease to exist. That should just be a, a huge indicator to us that God is actually worthy of worship. If all things exist through him, and because he wills them to keep existing, this God is is all worthy of our worship. He's worthy of us to stand in awe of his majesty, realize how finite and small we are. He's also worthy of our fear. We should have a healthy fear of God. I mean, who else is like him? He says it all all over the Old Testament. Fear me, there is none like me. Stand in awe before me. He's truly worth that because there's nothing else that can speak things into existence. The second thing that I see is, is, and this was pretty cool, God is independent from and yet still involved in his creation. Right? When I say he's independent from his creation, like I said uh, earlier whenever we were reading the text, nothing existed alongside God. Like, he's utterly distinct from the creation. Nothing else is eternal, right? Like for a long time, scientists thought that like the universe was eternal. And I guess maybe you could still make that argument because all the matter like had to be there to explode into the, it's it's garbage. Like (laughs) the matter exploded into existence because God spoke it into existence, but that's neither here nor there. Um, 
But nothing is co-eternal with God. Like, again, he didn't, he didn't fashion the world out of, out of pre-existing matter that just needed some help to get along. Nothing helped him create. He did it all out of nothing. And not only that, right? So not only is he totally distinct in that he had to make it come about and he doesn't depend on it whatsoever, but God actually didn't need to create either. Right? That's kind of a weird thought. Like, God needs nothing. Like he, uh, according to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, read that, it's real good. Um, it's for real, I'll buy you a copy if you want one. Um, God, he says God subsists completely in himself, which means he just exists by his own power. And he's completely content in existing just wholly on his own. Right, like God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in perfect glory. Right, this this beautiful dance. I've heard some some philosophers and theologians refer to it as this glorious dance that they're in, exalting one another, perfect submission, perfect glory. He didn't need to create. He exists wholly on his own in perfect glory and contentment, completely independent from the creation, and yet he still created. So keep that in mind. And then the last thing that, I, I, that, that smacked me out of this passage was God is sovereign. Right, that's a word you're going to hear me use a lot if you decide to make Rev your, I'm going to college and this is my home church for the next nine months. God is sovereign, which means God is in control of all things. People can try to oppose him, but it's going to be unsuccessful because he is infallible. He governs all things. He cannot be successfully opposed ever. Right? So where I see God being sovereign is he willed everything into existence. Again, Colossians says like, everything's like, held together and brought into being by like, the will of Christ. Right? So God wills everything to, into existence and he rules over it as its owner. And something that I thought was really cool is whenever God wills something, right? let there be. What's he expressing? I want this let there be, then it necessarily comes to pass. Because he's omnipotent, he's powerful enough to make the thing come to pass. And not only is he omnipotent, but he's infallible. He's never wrong. Right? So whenever God says, I want this, I'm powerful enough to make it happen, nothing can ever make me wrong in the things that I declare, boom, light comes into existence, people come into existence, everything. It must necessarily come into pass because God has spoken that it would come to pass. So unlike us, this is big, unlike us, whenever God plans something, it always happens. Right? And it always happens on his timetable, too. God's not delayed in doing anything that he wants to do, ever. God does as he sees fit, when he sees fit. Our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases, right, according to the psalmist. So again, nothing in all creation can successfully oppose. We can oppose the creator and his plans, but nothing will successfully oppose the creator and his plans. All right, so the creation account teaches us about God for certain. Right? That's, that's what I, I wanted to unpack, some attributes of God there. Um, but what, what it didn't exactly say, at least not explicitly in the text, is why. <laughs> why did God create? It tells us about God, about his nature, to some, to some extent. But why did God create? That's the question I started asking myself this week. Right, and the reason why is, if he's independent from his creation, and he didn't need to do it, 
why would he want to do it? You ready? A lot of my reformed people in the room know the answer. For his glory. God created solely for his glory, or at least rather primarily for his glory. And what I mean by glory, uh, it means praise, for his praise, for his honor, for his fame to be declared. Right? That's why God did this. Romans 11.36 says, For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. Why does God do X, right? Fill in the blank. Why did God do X? Whether it's good or bad, whether it's suffering and calamity or, or peace and prosperity, whatever that the thing is that we can ask about, why does God do it? He does it for his own glory always. Now, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, isn't that kind of narcissistic? Right? Like, isn't that like kind of like he's just being kind of a big-headed, egotistical jerk? Right? Because narcissism means an exaggerated sense of self-importance. Isn't God kind of being a narcissist? Um, no. Short answer, no way. The reason why I say that, can anyone else in here speak something into existence? Has anyone else in here ever existed before anything else existed? No. Anyone in here, like, are you unable to die? No. Okay, so, so we're not eternal. We're not omnipotent. Do you know everything? No. Can you be everywhere at once? No, right? It's so like God alone deserves glory and he's totally justified in doing everything for his own glory because he alone is God. So God alone deserves glory because he alone is God and there is truly none like him. We glorify things that are unique, do we not? That guy is awesome at X. He's uniquely gifted at this thing. Can you show me anything that God's not supremely gifted at? He's truly worthy of glory. But how does creation bring him glory? Right? Cre- creation, this is, there's a few answers to this. Creation screams that there is a creator. And in doing so, brings God glory. Psalm 19, cha- uh, chapter 19, verse 1. The heavens proclaim the glory of God, and the skies display his craftsmanship. Isaiah 6, 3. Angels are screaming this. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Like The complexity of creation points to a designer. Right? Again, you've heard, I'm sure some of you have heard apologists say, consider the human eye or the cardiovascular system or like how, it, how just the, the utter complexity of like the insides of a cat, right? Like I was actually writing this sermon looking down at my cat going, you are incredible, you know that, right? Like just the complexity of creation points to the fact that something must have designed it. Something must have created it, right? And I'm sure a lot of you have heard this analogy before. If you're walking along a beach and you see a pocket watch, what's the first thing you assume? Someone made this and someone left it here, right? Like the beach itself did not just conjure up a pocket watch, right, with all of its intricate gears. That would be insane. It is not possible, right? Let alone the beach itself, right? So the complexity of nature screams that there is a designer, right? Consider this. We saw in this first chapter that God gives humanity authority, over everything in all of creation. Think about this. Humanity's authority and power over the rest of creation points to a greater authority. The fact that the world's not ran by lions, but is instead ran by human beings, 
right, points to the fact that we have authority over the created order. And if, they, if we have authority over something and we know that we're finite, every human being knows this, that you're finite, that you have shortcomings, that you're not all powerful, does it not stand reason then that there is one who has supreme authority over even you? So again, the complexity, the order of creation, um, the fact that we, and I figured the Shermans would enjoy this, right, are, are creative expression. Human beings like to create things. The arts, the scientists, uh, or sciences, um, technolo- technological advances, music, right, all this stuff. The fact that we like to make stuff, and if you give us like, enough rest right, and adequate resources, we will begin to make things. Some really stupid things, right, like the as-seen-on-TV things that you find at Walmart. Some really stupid things, but we'll begin to create things nonetheless. Now, what does that point to? It points to one who actually creates. We modify things and put things together, but God actually speaks things into existence. The fact that we like to work on things and create points to a true creator. So truly, the creation does declare the glory of God in just tons of different ways. But not only that, but in this passage, we see God displaying His glorious grace. We said if He does everything and He created this world for His glory, God displays His glorious grace by giving the earth to humanity as a gift. I had never thought of it this way before. Right? Genesis 1.28, Then God blessed them, the human beings, and said, Be fruitful and multiply. You've got to love that one. <laughs> Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea. Right? Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Again, he puts humanity in charge. He says, I am giving this to you. Reign over it. The only one that you're subject to is me. Right? This is God saying this as far as I can tell. But you are to reign. And consider in that, this is the sixth day. God made human beings last. Right? He made us as the last thing in his creation. Which means that we didn't help him create. And he didn't need us. Because right? you see like in a lot of um, creation myths, the gods, right? the false gods, would create human beings to help them do the work that they didn't want to do. <laughs> Like, legit, I was reading one, like, the, like, this one God created human beings to help him, like, with irrigation ditches. <laughs> Our God's like, nah, man, let there be irrigation ditches. Um, <laughs> that's the book of Second Doughty. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, like, the fact that we didn't help him create, and he made us last, and he didn't need us, points to the fact that the earth is a pure gift given to us that we are to receive um, with thankfulness and declaring God's grace. Again, that he didn't have to create us at all let alone give us a world that was perfect, that he declared was very good. So there's his grace, his glorious grace displayed in the giving of creation. And then this one, this might have been the coolest one to me. How does, how does creation give God glory? God was to inhabit the earth with his people. Right? Give me a second, I'll have to unpack this one. God was to inhabit the earth with his people. Right? That was his plan. That's what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. Right, um, we see that God rests from His work in, in the beginning of Genesis two, and uh, in the ancient Near East. Remember, Moses is not writing uh, the creation account in a vacuum. Right, he's writing this so that you can compare and contrast the God of Israel, right, our God, with the God with these false gods and how they create. Right, he's writing and saying, okay, your God has to like have sex with this God and do all this other stuff in order to make the moon. Our God talked. Clearly more powerful than yours. Yours had to have human beings to help him dig ditches. Our God didn't need to do any of that stuff. He actually made human beings last and then gave them to the earth or gave the earth to them as a gift, right? So that being said, 
Moses isn't writing this in a vacuum. He's writing this over and against. And whenever we see a God resting in any of these creation accounts, it implies entering a dwelling. Right? God finishes his work in creation and says, I'm going to enter my dwelling now. I'm going to rest. Now, how does this bring glory to God? Humanity was to glorify God in enjoying his perfect and immediate presence forever. This was God's design. I'm going to dwell here with my people in perfect communion, immediate presence with them, immediate communication, in perfection where there's no death or sickness or strife or disease or war or whatever. Perfect everything. And the people will enjoy me and enjoy me as the giver of the gift. And in doing so, whenever we enjoy God, we glorify him. This was God's plan. This is how the creation was intended to glorify God, and in many ways still does. All right, so God is all-powerful. He's independent and yet involved in his creation. He created for a purpose. He had a plan right, to bring himself glory. This tells us a few things. Because right, I just don't want you guys to have like a bunch of head knowledge, right? Like there are legitimate comforts in this passage for us. Right? Just those three things tell us that God has a legitimate purpose. If he had a purpose in creating the world, then he has a purpose in creating everything that he made in the world. Right? God is not arbitrary. Think about that. He doesn't just shrug his shoulders and say, that, that. Like, he, he doesn't do things arbitrarily. There is divine wisdom and a divine plan at work at all times. Which is a huge reminder for us, right? This, we were created by God for a reason. Right? That's, is, that not, is that not what every human being is trying to figure out? Why are we here? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? What is, what's the plan? Why do I exist? This passage tells us there is actually a plan. There's actually a purpose for our existence. And here's the general purpose for humanity. Right? The general purpose for humanity is that we would glorify God by knowing Him and enjoying Him and seeing Him as supreme. Right? That we would have faith in Him, enjoy Him for who He is and, and rest in Him and trust Him and then obey Him. That's what I mean by seeing Him as supreme. Obey him. All right. That's his general purpose. And then later in scripture, as he reveals more of himself, we see that God desires us to know him specifically by faith in Jesus. And that there's no other way to know him. Faith in Jesus or you don't know him and you're not going to fulfill the thing that he purposed you to do. Or that he, uh, the, the, the reason why he created you. And that kind of got me thinking about this. So if God created us for his glory, that we would know him and obey him and have faith in him and trust in him um, and all those things that would bring him glory in those ways, does it not make sense then that whenever we sin or whenever we reject him, if you're an unbeliever, whenever we sin or reject God, does it not make sense then that we crumble internally? Show me one person who's staunchly in sin, unrepentantly, and after a season, sure, they may enjoy it for a while, but inside they begin to crumble. Life does not go how they thought it would. These things aren't actually as satisfying as they once hoped that they would be. Right? Again, some of the most miserable people in the world are rich and famous. We see it all the time. 
And that's because we're going against the design. Whenever we sin or reject God, we're going against the thing that he made us for. So, of course, we're going to, like, crumble internally, right? That's like trying to water plants with gasoline, right? That's not why gas was made. It's only going to destroy the plants, right? Call that lame if you want. But, like, whatever. Like, that, that made sense to me. That's not the purpose for gasoline. So, of course, you're going to ruin everything whenever you don't use it for the purpose it was meant to be used. That's why our lives fall into disarray whenever we disobey God. That rhymed. I feel like a Baptist. Um, God, help me with that. Um, just think about that. Whenever we sin, everything just falls in, into uh, just shambles because we're not glorifying God the way that he intended us to. But also consider the hope, right? The fact that we were created for a reason. Consider the hope that that truth gives us in contrast with just the utter lie that our culture tells us. Right? Pit these two things against each other and tell me which one gives more hope. We are products of chance, Versus, we were created by God for a purpose. Which, one's actually, which one actually gives hope to the human being? You're actually here for a reason, or, yeah, man, we don't know, good luck. We actually have hope. Like, we can stand defiant in the face of despair and say, I have worth. God has purposed my life. I don't know about you guys. I don't know how many people, what your stories are. I used to be an atheist, and that was the most despairing thought in the world. There's no actual reason for my existence. I'm an animal like everyone else, or like everything else, rather, in creation. I'm an animal. I need to make my life have some kind of a purpose. And then whenever God opened up my heart to receive the gospel... All of a sudden, all, all that ebbed away because I realized I am made in the image of God. I have dignity. He's created me for reasons to know Him and glorify Him and knowing Him. So there's hope there. There's no more wondering why we exist, right? We don't have to make up a reason for living. Right, and just throwing this out there, if you try to make up your own reason for living, whether it's your children, or whether it's your job, or whether it's your friends, or whatever this goal is, that thing will let you down, and then you have to make up something else should you survive that letdown. Should you not completely crumble in despair. But we don't have to do that. We don't have to make up a reason for living or a reason for life existing. God has given it to us and then revealed it to us in grace. So that we could live with purpose. Knowing that, that means we can push on in faithfulness in our Christian lives. Knowing that we're to glorify God. But, I mean, let's, let's not be foolish here. We all know that uh, not everyone fulfills that purpose. Right? Not everyone fulfills the purpose to glorify God by knowing and enjoying Him. What I'm saying is there are people who aren't Christians, are there not? Nevertheless, all will serve a purpose. Whether they serve the general purpose that God created humanity for, they serve another purpose. Everyone will serve a purpose. Romans chapter 9, Paul talks about what if God in his sovereignty creates some to be vessels of his mercy and his grace and others to be vessels of his wrath, to be destroyed in judgment. Everyone will serve a purpose. 
whether they repent and believe in Christ, or whether they reject God altogether and, and serve a whole other purpose entirety of, of instead of God saying, look at the mercy and grace that I bestowed on this person, that they glorify me in, in submitting to my lordship, or whether he says, this is my judgment and my wrath displayed. Everyone will glorify God. It's just a question of how will you glorify God. But all will serve a purpose. Notwithstanding that, God is inviting us all into this general purpose by faith in Jesus. God is inviting us in to the general purpose to know Him through faith in Christ and glorify Him. But like I said, all will glorify Him in one way or another. Just the question of how. But the creation account, right, so not only do we have hope from it um, in the sense that we have reason for living, but the creation account also reminds us that God is intimately involved in our lives. Right, I wrote here in my notes, it's making me laugh, God is not a deist. <laughs> right? What a deist is, what deism is, it's this belief that God made the world, kind of set it on a clock, and then just said, have at it, and just walked away from it, and just is letting it go, and he's not governing it, and he's just leaving it all up to its own end. Right? God doesn't do that. That's not the God of the Bible. That's the God of Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and all those guys. That's not the God of Scripture. God is not a deist. In, in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 in Genesis, we see this. We see God intimately weaving his creation together one step at a time, one day at a time. Right? Like God could have no doubt... Obviously, he's omnipotent, he's sovereign, he can do whatever he wants. He could have spoken complete creation into existence all at one time. Let there be a universe with everything in it. Boom. But that's not what he does. He decides to call things out individually, one at a time. So God, again, intimately weaves creation into existence instead of just making it all at once. And then we see in chapter 2, we didn't get to read this, we'll be in this next week, that God forms man out of the dirt. Think about this. Like, whenever you form something, think about what you do. Like, like you're, you're in it, man. Like, you're, you're, you're involved in shaping this thing. So God forms man, and then God breathes his own breath into man. And then we see God dwelling with man. Again, like God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, those kinds of things. God is dwelling with man. This is incredible intimacy we get from the first two chapters of Genesis. A ridiculous intimacy from a holy God who is, is far greater and, and transcendent and beyond and just different. And yet he condescends himself to, for intimacy with his creation. I say that because it really serves us well week in and week out, to be reminded, everything happening around you is from the hand of the God who is involved. Who knit you together in your mother's womb, according to Psalm 139. Who wrote all the days of your life out in his book before the first one ever came. Everything you would ever experience, whether suffering or prosperity, whatever it is, all of it, he wrote from the foundation of the world. He is intimately involved. His hand is there. God is not, and I know a lot of us feel this way, sometimes whenever life just bears its teeth down at us, right, that God is just sitting back in heaven, right, like Bruce Almighty style, right? Like, he's talking about like God's like with like the ants and a magnifying glass and he could make my life better, but he'd just rather watch my feelers burn, right? Like that's, like Jim Carrey is a comedic genius. Um, but that's not what God is doing. God's not just sitting back and watching us 
He's actually guiding everything in our lives in accordance with his will. Again, you guys know Romans 8, 28. Everything works together for the good of those who love God, to his glory, in accordance with his own plan. Everything. So whether it's good or bad, whether we perceive it as good or bad, everything has the mark of divine providence all over it. Because our God is not sitting back and watching us. He's intimately involved in everything. And I just want to take a minute. I know that there are people in here that, that, that are going through some stuff right now. Um, pretty much you could say that at any, any, diff, any given point in the year, uh, any, any sermon, really. I, I just I want to encourage you if you're struggling right now. Because God is an intimate God. I, I want, if, you, if you're in despair right now or life is hard or you feel abandoned by God, that he doesn't care about you anymore, and you feel like all is lost and that there's no point to anything, I really want to encourage you with this. God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten you. In whatever is going around, whether it's, it's family strife or whether it's work-related stuff or money issues or, or, or whatever it is, God has not forgotten you. He sees you. He is guiding your life every single second that you live. He has ordained all of it. He is at work. And right now, if you're suffering, He's calling you to trust in Him right now. And if you're not suffering, He's calling you to trust Him right now because there, there are two kinds of people, right? There are people who are in the middle of, or three, going into a trial, coming out of a trial, um, or in the middle of a trial. He's always calling us to trust Him. So be encouraged. So again, so to kind of go back a little bit, we saw that in the beginning, creation was very good, right? Um, that God dwelled with man in perfection, in harmony, in, in true life as he intended man to live. Um, but just like I talked about with people suffering and, and dealing with, with strife and all, and, and all this different junk that we deal with in our lives, we can clearly see that life today is not how it was in the beginning, right? Like, you don't got to be real smart to figure that one out. Perfection, the world we have now, right? Like, Trump and Clinton are getting ready to go at it for the White House. Not exactly how things were in Genesis. Um, is it not funny? Too political? Too soon? Whatever, man. Um, but we can clearly see that things are not perfect like they once were in the beginning. Again, like all jokes aside, there's death. Death sucks. There's suffering in the world. There's disease. There's sickness. People we love get hurt and die. There's war. There's strife. Again, there's infighting in families. There's friends selling each other out and backstabbing one another. This is all because man sinned in the garden. All of this is a result of sin. Man disobeyed God and disrupted the order, which, by the way, is, is treason against God, that God would give a command and we would say, no, I'd rather do my own thing. That is us trying to usurp God as king of the universe. How absurd is that? The one who speaks things into existence, that we would have the gall to tell him no. The one who made us and governs us, that we would say, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. Of course things fell into disarray. Humanity disrupted the order. We rebelled and ruined everything. We corrupted the creation. And God is holy and just, and He will not be around sin. And that caused everything to begin to fall apart. 
And it's our fault. Let that bear down on you for a second. And I won't deny that this is a mystery. Paul in in Romans chapter 5 says that we all sinned in Adam. I'd love to talk to you about this if, if, if you think that that's a crock or you don't understand it. I don't have time to go into it this evening. But the Bible declares, the infallible word of God declares that we sinned in Adam. It's not Adam and Eve's fault. I know we always make jokes about that, like, thanks a lot, Eve, right? It's your fault. It's my fault that the perfection was destroyed. Man's sin. Let that bear down on you for a minute. We are the reason that everything is like it is now. We are the reason for death. We are the reason for sickness. We are the reason for all of those things because we rebelled. But nevertheless, and hear me on this, we talked about this a bit in the men's group today. God's plan remains. God's plan is sure. His plan to dwell among his creation remains and is sure to happen. Think about this. God is unchanging. Right? The theological word is immutable. Right? God is completely unchanging. His plan then, an offshoot of himself, a promise that he makes, his plan is immutable then. His plan will happen. He is infallible. He is omnipotent. So if that's going to happen, then God must restore and redeem what has fallen then, must he not? Spoiler alert. He's begun to do that already. Check this out. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 and verse 14. There's a parallel between this and Genesis 1. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Verse 14, So the Word became human and made His home among us. I'm going to read that one again real quick. So the Word became human and made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So this eternal word, this is the agent of creation, the eternal word, God the Son, who created all things, took on flesh and dwelled among his creation. Think about that for a second. That God would condescend himself to take on human form. But Jesus didn't just come to dwell like God said that he wanted to dwell with his people whenever he entered that, entered that Sabbath rest. Jesus came to redeem. We said God must redeem if his plan is going to stand eternal. Jesus Christ came to redeem the fallen creation by his work on the cross. So God, with his eternal purpose, restored all who will believe by the work of Jesus. That Jesus lived a perfect life in our place, complete obedience to God, and suffered the penalty that we deserve from God to be separated from God. And Jesus fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of the law in order to reconcile us to God by his work. 
the word who created us, who we've sinned against, redeems us. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the debt for sin has been paid. And the relationship that we have with the Godhead is restored to what it once was before sin ruined it. Because make no mistake, believer or unbeliever, you have a relationship with God. It's just by nature a child of God's wrath. But through faith in Christ, you can have that relationship restored to being just a child of God. Like it once was in the beginning. So by faith, we receive peace with God. This God that we were once enemies of and deserving of his wrath. We receive peace with him now. Restoration, right? Reconciliation with this God. We receive the gift of salvation. We receive communion with this God. Um, He actually begins to dwell among us by being in us, right? The indwelling Holy Spirit that takes up residence in us and, 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 and regenerates us. We begin to see God as he is, as supreme as the creator of all things, as the one who, who deserves to be glorified, who, the one who deserves to be worshipped. And we come to truly know this God because we have seen the glory of His Son, Jesus. The reason why I went through all those things that we get through faith in Christ is think about this. We, through faith in Jesus Christ, get a taste of what the relationship was. We get a taste Communion with God, peace with God, His presence in our lives, His guidance, His direction, all of it, just like it was, but it's just a taste. And we receive it, think about this, all as a gift, by grace you are saved. Not works, not anything you did, not because you're a good person, not even because you just willed it so much, but you receive salvation freely as a gift. God restored you, if you're a Christian, without your help. Did he not? You were dead in your trespasses. And he caused you to be made alive in Christ. God restores us without any of our help. Just like he created the universe for us. Completely without our help. And then gives it to us by grace. But even with this taste of how things were, it seems as if God's plan has been frustrated, does it not? And the reason why I say that is because God does not dwell with us like he did in the beginning. This is not a perfect world that we live in. It seems as though God's plan has failed. But this, Revelation chapter 21, John's having a vision. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone. That means sea is sin and chaos. All of that is gone. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among His people. He will live with them and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. God will restore at the end. It is sure. His purposes shall come to pass, because they always do. So as it was in the beginning, it forevermore shall be come the end. This is the word of God. He promises it to us. 
So that being said, take hope. God has allowed us by grace through faith in Christ to enjoy him now. That's awesome. He gives us a taste of what was and what will to come, but the perfect will come. God has declared it. I can't stress that enough. His promise is sure. If he says, let there be light, and light comes into existence, then surely if he says, I will dwell with my people, he will. If he says, I'll restore my creation through the Messiah, and he did, surely everything else that he promises will come to pass. The promise is sure. So don't despair as life is hard. Don't despair as trials come. Because God has not forgotten his promise to restore. He's not slow in keeping his promise. So we need not be depressed over politics. I know that's a thing people are dealing with right now. We need not be depressed over the state of our nation. We need not be depressed over monetary issues or relational issues or social issues or or death or sickness or war or life in general. I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned with those things, but we need not be depressed and worried all the time about those things. Because God is at work. God is intimately involved. He's driving all things towards His eternal purpose with His omnipotent hand and sovereign will. We can keep hope in this life knowing what the end holds. <laughs> can we not? Right, like Just like a, a mother in childbirth, right? Like that's horrible on them, I hear. I don't know. Um, but what, what can mothers do? Mothers can persevere through the labor pains knowing the joy that is to come. So can we. We can push through all of the pain in this life knowing what lays ahead of us. Because through Christ, God is making all things new. And as it was, it will be. So we say along with the author of Scripture, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your promises. Thank you for the fact that you are faithful to yourself whenever we do not deserve you to be faithful to us because whenever we are faithless, you are faithful. God, we know that that these promises you've made us, that you've sworn by yourself that you will make these things come to pass. So God, we know we can trust them. So God, we ask you to make these things true. Father, help us to live our lives with an eye towards the return of Christ. Help us to live in hope. Let us be encouraged by your word. God, impress these truths on our hearts. Show us your glory. God, I pray that in in light of your power and your sovereignty and all these things, that we would not despair whenever life is hard, but that we'd push on in obedience because you're worthy and because you hold us in your hands. Thank you for being such a good father to us. But above all things, thank you so much for sending Christ to be crucified on our behalf so that we can know you as father. In his name, amen.